Here we go, it is the I Hate Infinite Jest Podcast episode 31, pages 906 to 938, how are you? Guys, I'm delirious. I had a rare bout of day drinking today with my friend Neil Wood from Footnote Episode 2, Consider the Lobster, and uh, we got pretty drunk and had a great time, but that's neither here nor there. The episode this week, again, pages 906 to 938. Our guest this week are uh, from the Infinite Cast podcast is Molly Mary O'Brien and Chris Wade, who you may know better from the Chapo Trap House podcast. Yeah, this was kind of a kind of a big one, just because these guys have their own Infinite Jazz podcast going on, where in which Molly Mary is forcing Chris Wade, who has never read it, Molly Mary has read it twice, to, she's pretty much reading Infinite Jest to him, so I figured this was a great one, I mean, I'm not gonna fucking lie, they're both uh, a bit more ahead of me in the podcasting world, and they were kind of a get for me, so that was definitely part of it, but on the other hand, it was also a, as we are wrapping this podcast up, their podcast is just beginning. Again, I think they released an episode today. They're only up to page 108, and they're going to go way more in-depth because they're not summarizing like me. They're straight up reading this shit to each other. Um, yeah, so we had a great time. We discussed some very... I, I love doing podcasts with comedy people because as much as I like getting into the literary stuff, it's, it's fun just shooting the shit and having a good time um i had some problems with zoom which guys i'll be honest with you uh every podcast i did before this one was always in person i never had to use zoom so i have been waiting for shit to go wrong this entire time it took 31 weeks and zoom (laughs) thou hath betrayeth me so uh i had to kind of cut the podcast in two because it held me to a 40-minute limit, and I had to restart. But I don't think it's that awkward. I actually think it went pretty... I had a little bit of anxiety about this episode, but uh, thankfully the problem... Well, for a few reasons, the technical projects aside, um, Chris Wade doesn't know the book yet, and I didn't want to spoil anything for him. As a matter of fact, Chris, if you're listening back to this for some reason, uh, plug your fucking ears for 15 seconds. In this particular chapter, we're talking a lot when Gately is in bed and thinking back to other things while in the hospital. While I did my best to hide the fact that he's in a hospital at this point because I don't want to give away any kind of injury that leads where he ends up at. Other than that, though, it really wasn't too awkward. Uh, kind of the benefit of the structure of this book, which I hated in so many other regards, uh, the simple fact that I could give him all this background on Don Gately, and it's not spoiling anything because David Foster Wallace and his infinite wisdom as a martyr to modernity, of course, it was too good for this beautiful, uncaring world. And the last uh, 80 pages of his book is still doing character development. And I didn't care for it much, but it helped me in this particular podcast. So again, um, enjoy this one. Molly Mary O'Brien, Chris Wade, go listen to Infinite Cast. I I want to bequeath my listeners unto... Don't leave me entirely, but for your Infinite Jest needs, maybe go on to them, because they're getting a little more in detail than even I did, and they're not not coming from quite as antagonistic... Well, I wouldn't say any 
antagonistic plays. Uh, Molly Mary has some very uh, funny points on David Foster Wallace's writing of women, and most modern authors attempt modern male authors attempt to write women. I have talked enough. No song this week. We have two more episodes from this. I've already recorded one of them. You'll have songs in the next two weeks. Coming in for a landing, guys. I'll see you. I'll see you next week. Two more episodes left. I hate Infinite Jest. Again, Molly Mary O'Brien and Chris Wade of Infinite Cast. Check out our episode and check out Infinite Cast. I'll see you guys later. All right, I'm recording. Okay, here we are. I hate Infinite Jest, episode 31, pages 906 to 938. My guests this week, you will know them from the Infinite Cast. That would be Chris Wade and Molly Mary O'Brien. How are you guys doing? Just great. Oh, Thank wonderful. you. Yeah. Molly, I have been. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I have been trying so hard to get the order of your name right. Uh, I, 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 it's, it's very Irish in a sort of um, uh, Metro Boston way, isn't it? Yes. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I come from an Irish Catholic family. So there's, I, I have one of all three. I have, the, I got the complete collection in the family tree. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I came across you guys. Uh, I found you were doing the Infinite Cast, where you are quite literally reading Infinite Jest to Chris, who has never, ever read it. That is correct. Okay. This follows the model of our other first podcast, where I basically tell Chris about a different like musical piece of writing each episode so i'm basically just explaining a lot of things to chris yeah uh traditionally i have not been a um uh, I, i've not been a heavy reader uh but i'm changing it this year uh books are back on the table I'm, i've read uh, uh a I've, I've been plowing through some fairly dense tomes of american history and i'm finally actually reading dune for for myself just for pleasure Ooh. so uh we're, we're doing books again. Okay. Folks, books, they're good. See, I, I've had a few people write into me what book I should do next. I want to make it more like a culture podcast, but I don't want to lose the book people. And Dune is very high up on that list. A lot of people are asking for Dune. Yeah. So, something about Dune. Dune is in the air. I mean, it's, maybe it's just the movie, but also, uh, yeah, that, that, that is honestly the thing that I thought uh, would be the next book that we would tackle for our cast as well. Cause the idea is, you know, we, we started this podcast because, you know, people are constantly talking about infinite jest online, mm. uh, especially in the con context of it being like a book that like hipster dudes have read or like the only book that, uh, that, that young males, uh, read to seem, uh, intellectual. Uh, and it was, um, always kind of a joke between me and Molly that Molly is the one between the <laughs> two of us who has read Infinite Jest twice uh, and I had not. So, you know, the, the kind of joke concept of the pod is uh, we're, she's reading Infinite Jest to me to um, to see if boys can like Infinite Jest too or not. Uh, <laughs> I'm, are, are you and, and and it seemed like the, the, the proper inverse of that was for me to read Dune to her. Oh, there you go. I was I was gonna say, is the end of this life cycle you run you writing uh pretty snarky little blogs and like, oh my god, these infinite jest girls, they just yeah. they <laughs> won't stop. 
I I won't stop until the the cultural stereotype gets completely subverted and people are tweeting about how obnoxious women are for not <laughs> shutting up about Infinite Jest. Yes, I mean I'm on a I'm on a mission. There you go. I mean I I, I do think it's a little. I, I mean it's it's kind of unfair just because it is a, a a pretty male centric book. I was um. So I pretty much recorded all of these episodes in order, but because the end of it is coming right up against Christmas, I actually recorded the very final episode yesterday. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we got uh, we got pretty deep into the like, OK, now that we've gotten all the way through this, like, uh, Chris, what was your opinion of the uh, Wardeen chapter? <laughs> um, it's it's rough. So, I mean, one of the things that we're getting at in our read through it is that like, you know, uh, Wallace really only has like four things that he cares about. Mm. One of them being, uh, the nature of grammar as like a, uh, an academic interest. And so on, on one sense, my interpretation of the Wardeen chapter was very much him, like as a mental exercise, attempting to write in that kind of, vernacular English as a way to prove that it can be done with like a set of prescriptive grammar rules uh, even though it is a vernacular English uh, like I don't know what you call it uh, a subtype genre or something Uh, but so so it's more like an it comes off as like an intellectual exercise, but then at the same time, it's just very uh, weird and stilted and uh, possibly racist. I don't know. It's 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 one of the clunkiest things in the book so far, and, and it comes and, up like right away. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what in the first like thirty pages exactly. Or yeah. something? But here's the thing we were discussing yesterday, which was like the overall like okay, let's look back a little bit on the beginning and try to get a better feel for this. It doesn't really pay off i don't think i'm spoiling that for you like there's and a lot of you'll hear a lot of the apologists like well actually that character shows up in the background for three seconds on page 903 like yeah (laughs) and i've heard a lot of like well it's supposed to be cringeworthy but then i try to bring up like you know this was 1996 i really don't know how cringeworthy that I, i i wonder how many people at the time of its initial publishing were just like Oh yes, that is that is that character because they had not yet had the shame of the ages put on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't pay off and if you argue that it's trying to like help illustrate this vision of like poverty in greater the greater Boston area like he does that way more effectively elsewhere like in talking about Don Gately he's way way better at kind of describing what that looks like mm-hmm. as opposed to like a one-off scene where he's just he's just talking shit yeah <laughs> yeah and i i mean again my <laughs> prior to this i I've, I've read all of david foster wallace's um non-fiction or i don't know all of it but his two big collections of it which is where my thought about his you know fascination with grammar and prescription comes from because he has that long essay about grammar and prescription in which he specifically relates the anecdote of talking to a black student of his about how she should learn how grammar in vernacular English works before choosing to write in it in her own Hmm. work, 
which seems very related to this text. But it's, yeah, like the book just slams to a halt for him to like go on this uh, little jaunt into vernacular English grammar. Mm-hmm. And it's so far the o- one of the only parts that like hasn't progressed in the book. Like that that plot has not come back yet for me and we're like 110, 15 pages into, do, into it. So do, do not hold your breath on uh, the risk. The, the, there, there's no like, don't worry, it's so going to pay off. It, it does not happen. <laughs> and uh, particularly so early in the book. Um, so I started this podcast because I tried reading this like 10 years ago. And I got 400 pages in and eventually I was like, why am I even doing this? Why? And it wasn't yeah. like I had a friend who encouraged me. Frankly, another reason I started the podcast, uh, I do stand up here in Philly. There's only like three people who read books at all. Like, I don't know if it's just my particular scene, but it's not very, we're dumb as fuck down here. <laughs> I mean, if you met a Philly comic, I'm sure that comes across a little bit. But uh, it was actually funny because I started this thinking like, I'll have enough people in my you know social circle that'll fill this. And then I ran out of people I knew personally, like four episodes in. <laughs> that is uh, that's uh, Matt Chrisman from Chapo Trap House's take on this is of the joke of like oh, men only like one thing and it's fucking disgusting. And it's infinite jest <laughs> is like uh, uh, if you meet a man, if you are a young lady who has met a man who has read a book in the last year, you are already because you should consider yourself lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't read books, so th- they're they're being a joke about like infinite jest as this shibboleth of, I mean, of like male book privileges. Like, I, I try to find a guy who has read even read a book, and I'm including myself. Oh yeah, this is the first year that I've read more than one book in like a decade. See, and I would even go beyond that. It would be it would be bad enough if people just didn't read books. But not only are they not reading books, they are justifying reading comic books. As a, as, as this is perfectly, this is my meal replacement. I am reading. <laughs> no, that it, guys, again, that's the gist of this podcast and what it's going to be from here is like, you can like whatever you like, but you have to admit to me it's fucking dumb on some level. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, how, how did you discover this book in the first place? Like, what was, what was your to be, I don't know, what, what was your route to becoming a lady lit bro forcing, <laughs> forcing unwilling men to read Infinite Jest? It's been a long journey. Um, I read this book for the first time sophomore year of college over winter break, which is the perfect time to read Infinite Jest. Mm. So if anyone happens to listen to this podcast and they're in college, although college seems like a weird time right now, but uh, a month period in the winter when you have nothing else to do is a great time for Infinite Jest. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I had only known of it as like this, the, the big fat book that you read to like kind of be to engage and indulge with your most pretentious self because like I was a someone who teachers told was smart now I realize like I'm kind of a dumb bitch (laughs) like I my brain is just like degrading greatly but if you're like an extra credit kid I feel like that's where you're you're attracted to this like giant lump of book um, and I really liked it. And then I read it again, I think like two years later, because I was like, what happened? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like there were so many little, you know, tributaries of like, wait, hold on. This didn't make any sense. Like if I read it again, will it make sense? Just trying to piece together things like memento style. Uh, and so, yeah, this is round three. There is so much. So many people have told me like, oh, well, you, you need to read it a second time. And it's like, I barely... <laughs> I barely got through it, but now, like, so I'm really into, um, 
the, the funny thing is, even though I I'm super pretentious about a lot of things, but books, I guess I, I'm not super pretentious about books because I didn't again, talking about none of my friends really being readers. I didn't have anybody to one up, I guess. But like when, when it comes <laughs> to film, I will watch like Ingmar Bergman all fucking day and then watch a YouTube analysis made by some nerd that's just as long as the goddamn movie I just watched. <laughs> but with Infinite Jet, I gotta be honest, one of the things I'm finding out about the Infinite Jest fan base, and I feel bad because I know some of them are listening to this podcast, is after reading a lot of their theories online, I don't think they're anywhere near as smart as they really think they are. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to the prior the prior episode of, of your podcast, mm -hmm. and it sounds like you have a fraught relationship with the David Foster Wallace subreddit. It's, oh yeah, no, they really don't like, as you can imagine, just by the title of this, which I've tried to, you know, get it through to people that it's like, look, it's for one thing, a lot of people uh, in, in that fan base be like, well, you know, people say this is a difficult book. It's not a difficult book. Like you are a disingenuous piece of shit. This is a <laughs> really not welcoming book that throws you so much shit with no context right away. But it really just kind of like leads you along. As you can imagine, I have gotten some very well-written hate mail since day oh my one. God. Oh yeah, with with footnotes, one with footnotes. <laughs> I mean, on on one hand, from my experience with it, it is. I mean, it is like kind of, I, I what do you, what am I even saying? Like advanced or like intellectual, but it is a very pop book, like pop in the sense of like pop culture. Mm. It is funny. It is like the 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 references to things or like its relationship to the real world. I think is very immediately understandable for anybody who has existed in life or society or culture you know it's not like a uh, uh you know uh, um a a book that exists in some kind of like different academic universe or something it it, it is i think it it's fairly other than being dense it is fairly accessible mm. you know? it's just the structure that is is totally insane and but i and i think if you like let your like let yourself realize that the structure and like the footnotes and everything are in of themselves like a joke, mm -hmm. uh, which is at least how I understand them. I mean, we've just got through like two fairly long, dense footnotes, one of them being the filmography of James Owen Condenza, which mm -hmm. is what, like six pages of footnote about uh, or 10 pages of footnote. That's just like a list of imaginary movies. I, I am so upset uh, in the fan base that nobody has made like fan versions of some of those films, because I think a lot of oh them would be amazing to watch. Yeah. And then we also just did on our last episode. Um, uh, what what it, What is his, the student's name? Molly struck Struck's, Jim struck Struck's paraphrased or plagiarized version of the academic paper discussing the wheelchair assassins, mm, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. two very high concept footnotes, but in the end, effectively long jokes about his own writing material where in the, in the back end of the book, he can just be like, let me just riff on the stuff that I'm writing here. Uh, and some of it advances the plot a little bit. And some of it is just like gags about his, uh, himself and his writing style and how he relates to written material. I mean, I, 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 I think it's it's very approachable as like a joke. I got you. I will I will tell you now as someone early in the book, one of one of the big things is 
these little chestnuts he's dropping, you have no idea what is going to be just a chestnut and what's going to grow into like the uh, a primary arc of the story, which is kind of yep. fascinating. And you want to talk about that self-referential. As you get deeper into the book, there are numerous things where he talks about like uh, like uh, hi- himself's filmography and like cr- you know critics wondered like you know was there some kind of statement in how long this certain thing is or was he just a <laughs> shitty editor? Which I hope he's talking about himself. Again, that's another thing with the fan base is any of the self-deprecating stuff that David Foster Wallace puts in, they do not acknowledge. Like, no, he was a genius. And the only reason I get up in the morning, this I've said before that this book really appeals to uh, really appeals to young men who all they really have is the potential that they're really smart, but haven't done anything with it yet. I, I've had a Extra few people say, kids. if I read this book when I was 17, it would have it would have fucked me up and not in a good way <laughs> yep well that's yep. the thing if you uh if if you read infinite jest and you're like damn i'm smart here what you really need to do is uh write infinite jest yeah <laughs> oh god so um oh shit i actually fucked up i was supposed to ask your social media it doesn't matter i'll put it i'll put it in the beginning in the intro um it's all good so I'm trying to think. Yeah, you guys are gonna be well. What 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 is your typical reading background aside from Infinite Jest? Because I I feel like people again people don't go from Marvel comics to I'll read Infinite Jest. I guess there's a, there's a lead up of sorts. I I like to read in general. I'm I'm just like a general reading freak. I mean stuff that I was reading around the same time as Infinite Jest. Like I don't know. I was getting into like. Kurt Vonnegut, mm. Murakami. I'm a George Sanders hoe as well. Like I, I like the kind of like postmodern stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was an English major in college. Like I, I will basically read anything and find some kind of value in it. I'm trying to read Moby Dick right now. Ooh, I've heard it's a slow going. I, but I got distracted because I saw a viral Twitter thread about Andre Agassi's memoir. <laughs> I've been hearing about that too, and I actually, I really want to check it out now. You have to read it, especially if you've been so immersed in like this sort of tennis narrative. Mm-hmm. The Andre Agassi memoir is actually a great companion of like the competitive tennis mindset because that man is certifiably insane, <laughs> but so funny. Anyway, that's I. This is all to say, like I don't know. I read I read everything and anything. I'm mostly reading for our podcast right now, so I just read like twenty music biographies a year. I say I I really fucked myself over because while I was reading this, my my non project related book I was reading was Brothers Karamazov. So I pretty much was stuck between two thousand page fucking tomes <laughs> the entire time. Um, you mentioned That's Vonnegut. Aggressive. I I love Vonnegut. I think one of the things I've said to a few people that. Uh, the reason that Infinite Jest and David Foster, I like his nonfiction a lot, but I think part of the reason I'm just thoroughly non-charmed by his style is that Vonnegut got to me first. Like, yeah, everybody has that guy who like or, or, or gal, whoever that art that like really broadens your perspective and like, oh, I never thought of it that way. And just so many people got to me before Wallace did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the whole, like, kind of speculative future thing, which I think David Foster Wallace is obviously, like, he spends a lot of time doing that sort of world building. Mm-hmm. But, like, Vonnegut does it so much more effortlessly with so many, with so fewer words. <laughs> Agreed. And I think it's also kind of, like, 
it's fun to have all that detail there. But then it's also fun when Vonnegut just goes like, yeah, gravity was heavier some days. Like, that's all I need. Yeah, right. <laughs> Keep it simple. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Chris, what, what, what would you say is uh, more your literary background? By the way, if you're reading, like, American history stuff, I cannot recommend enough uh, the three-parter on Teddy Roosevelt, which I've found fascinating. The book is it a book? Uh, it's uh, it's it, I, I, the name of the author is escaping me right now, but it's the rise of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Rex, which is like his presidency, and then Colonel Roosevelt, which is his post presidency. You really only need to read the first one, but it is so good. Well, that might be a good <clears throat> next one for me because I'm I'm basically trying to do a survey of American history in a in various volumes, so. I just finished uh, The Rise of American Democracy by Sean Willens, okay. which covers basically uh, the, the founding to the Civil War. And I have now moved on to uh, The Republic for Which It Stands, hmm. uh, which is kind of like a post-Civil War Gilded Age. Uh, so now I need – so when I'm done with that, which will probably be in like six weeks because I read about 25 pages per day, and that's like in a 1,000-page book hmm. – um, I'll need something that's like early 20th century. So maybe I'll do the, the Theodore Rex. Yeah, I, I was my joke answer to what do you read? Uh, I was going to say is posts. Uh, <laughs> I, I really uh, only read Twitter. Uh, but again, that's why I'm trying to like push myself to do some uh, some some reading on the side. Um, but uh, if I'm trying to sound pretentious and intellectual uh, and and drop uh, an author that I have read and am a fan of that uh, sounds smart and not many people have heard of. I'm a big fan of Robertson Davies, Canada's premier man of letters of the 20th century. You definitely win. I've never heard of him. Uh, he has a series of trilogies, uh, of book trilogies that I find very good. It's like a combination of like a dr very dry Canadian humor and social observation, but then also um, like... Uh, uh, a spiritual mysticism uh, inspired by Jung's uh, psychoanalysis, um, the, the uh, Salterton trilogy, and specifically Fifth Business is what got me got me into him. Um, it's it's good. It's it's about like what happens when one uh, mean action of a child uh, creates a generation spanning set of consequences that uh, 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 ripples through people's personal lives. Uh, and also everybody in this guy's life is a Jungian archetype. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so Canadian seems like you might be some kind of a sleeper cell for the AFR or something, bro. <laughs> Maybe I think that I think this guy is it has more Ottawan values, more Ottawan energy yeah, than more Ottawan <laughs> Quebec energy. energy. Than oh, God. You know, it's it's such a shame that uh, I feel like two of the things I really wanted to get people on here to get their perspective was I wanted to get some people who had been through um, AA and recovery, which I found several of, because they taught, as a matter of fact, despite not really, um, now that I've finished the book, the overall consensus is I really didn't like it to begin with. I started liking it a lot and getting really excited. And the ending, not only did I not like the ending, it made me not like anything that led me, <laughs> that I was liking before it. Everything got ruined. But despite all that, a lot of the stuff on recovery, I would, uh, my mother's in recovery, so I would relate a lot of that stuff back to her. 
which she found really interesting. The mm -hmm. other thing, I really wish I could have gotten a disabled person on to talk about mm -hmm. the depiction of uh, the AFR, but despite searching, I could not find them because they are wily and do not be seen unless they want to be seen. <laughs> I I brought this up too in an earlier episode of just like I am curious about the modern kind of the current day vision of like disability justice and what they would think of David Foster Wallace's portrayal of disabled people because there's Mario as well right like and sometimes I'm like sometimes I feel like he has a, a definite like sensitivity toward disability and sometimes I think he's like kind of making it a joke. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would I would also like to hear a disabled person's perspective on this. That will have to be another podcast, unfortunately, because I never found it. Um, so just start it over again once you're, <laughs> yeah, just, once you're done. Everybody keeps to telling me to do that. I don't, guys. It took six months to do this, and it <laughs> it hurt. That's why it like the first episode we're doing after Infinite Jest is we're just ripping on fucking Napoleon Dynamite. That's it. Like something. Oh, wonderful. Because <laughs> that was what. That's a, that's a nice balm. Yeah. Well, that was that was another one that I actually really equated the two in that I was always looking for something like great. I wanted great art that was either going to crack me up or make me feel something. And much like Infinite Jest, Napoleon Dynamite was like, oh, you got to check it out. It's so great. It's so funny. Imagine like, it would be one thing if it was just a movie I didn't like. But it was a movie I didn't like that I was like 16 when it came out. So then my entire peer group was speaking solely in quotes from that movie for like six months afterwards. The main thing I remember about uh, Napoleon Dynamite was seeing that bit, I think the same weekend or maybe like even like one day in the next day as Garden State mm. and uh, all the, um, you know, the 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 twee like. Uh, pseudo intellectual people around me being like, "Oh, Garden State, what a perfect, beautiful movie!" And I was like, nah, "I kind of, I think Napoleon Dynamite was better." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember, I remember cracking up in the theaters watching Napoleon Dynamite. I don't know how how well it holds up, but it, it, I think it definitely benefits from having a, a a singular aesthetic. You know, those guys were like filmmakers from like southern idaho or something right that came up with that that it definitely has like a, a very outside perspective on uh on comedy which i i appreciate even if i don't know if it holds up or, or not because you know so much of like film comedy at any given period like you know it, it tends to go in these uh cycles where like one group or click mm -hmm. like gets into power or, like it's either the apatow crew or like people who had like come out of ucb or or something the, the, the apatow like, the apatow people have ruined filmed narrative comedy for a generation and it started uh, so strong <laughs> yeah 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 so i always appreciate when there's like some kind of singular or unique vision in film comedy that comes to the forefront and for that perspective alone i can i can give napoleon dynamite uh credit for at least at least being its own thing you know it did it swept everyone's minds though with like a freakish i think that's what you're maybe responding to is that like everyone went from zero to just like totally brainwashed by the napoleon dynamite language mm. and vision yeah i mean that is uh i don't remember where it is because it's way back in the book but um one of the 
pet peeves that I've had, even though it is justified, is that I actually I listened to a recent episode. You said that all the kids at Enfield seem like these weird, obsessive, compulsive, like middle aged people, which really kind of bothered me. If anything, the only thing that really made them feel like real kids to me is when they're like the Houster Halation. Because <laughs> that's how kids at that age talk to each other. In, in no, nobody has confidence or originality, so they're just repeating other funny things they said. Yes, yep. children are dumb as hell. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is that when you are that age, you feel so fucking smart. Uh, and and part of growing up is le- is learning and realizing that you are in fact uh, a stupid baby. Yes, exactly. It's. It's uh, it's humbling in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm actually dealing with a little bit of a problem here. My Zoom is telling me that uh, this meeting will end in ten minutes, and I don't know what the fuck that is about. Oh, weird. Yeah. yeah. I see the countdown. Very stressful. Yeah, it's very stressful. Okay, I'm going to fuck it. Let's just go for ten minutes and then maybe restart because I don't know what to do. This is. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Um. I guess in that case, let's get into the notes. Um, Chris, I'm not sure what to do with you here because I got to. I'll, I'll hang back and, and just let spots. it flow all over you. Yeah. Okay. At least he's met Don Gately. So, yes. Yes, he has. <laughs> but you, you've met a few of the people. It's. Yeah. I wish I'd gotten to you guys when you were like another hundred pages in just because I would love his idea of where he thought everything was going. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So. 906 to 911. Uh, we are in first perspective with Hal. He's lying on the floor. Just interrupt anytime you have anything to say. Um, he's been patrol- He's been told by Petropolis Khan that the Inkster is in hysterics. Of course, Hal seems to calm. Uh, Hal seems calm to himself. He randomly thinks about how his father was buried in Avril's family plot in Quebec. Um, Pemulus says they need to. Talk- have you gotten to any of the DMZ stuff yet? Chris? Chris knows what DMZ is. Okay. Which is to say acid that is taken acid. Yes. Super <laughs> Remember acid. Remember that, Chris? Yeah. Mushrooms that grow on mushrooms. Uh, <laughs> they need to talk about the DMZ they intended to take together. Hal gets pissed off saying, we intend to live like Shiite Muslims and produce clean urine, Pemulus. This is the whole <laughs> point. Um, he chastises Pemulus for tempting him. How requests the Pemulus put on one of his father's films to a specific spot. Good-looking men in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. Again, why is nobody trying to make this movie? Uh, I, I agree. We got to find our uh, Paul Paul uh, Arthur Allen Paul Allen. Ha- well, it's it's in the it changed in this section. Sorry, we got really into the filmography. So just because it was so dense and meaty. But uh, yes, Chris, the the movies come back and in fact never left. They're <laughs> constantly referenced. Oh, yeah. In we'll, get, we'll get some very vivid descriptions coming up that make you want to see them all the more. <laughs> I do want to see them. I want to see all of his movies that are just like lens experiments. Yes. Like that's it. it does. Uh... I, I do love the notion of a guy who got into film, who got into narrative film, who seemed to really only have interest in like one little thing. It would be like if a guy got into comedy who was just in it for the setups and punchlines be damned. <laughs> uh, I think I mentioned this on our pod, but uh, one of the things that it remind uh, 
his movies remind me of is this mo- a very film school movie that I had to watch in film school. Uh, by a, a an experimental film called by Stan Brackage called Mothlight oh. that is made entirely by physically gluing pieces of dead moths to celluloid uh, celluloid cells and then running them through a uh, a film projector, um, which which seemed to have the same energy or, or that is what it reminded me of the, all of his things that are like here is just an experiment of like lights mm-hmm. and le- and lenses. Yeah, I feel I I need to watch a little bit more of the avant-garde film stuff because I feel like 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 David Lynch is like every like baby's first experimental kind of guy, <laughs> but there's there's some like wacky shit you can get into out there if you really really look into it. Okay. Yes. Um the moment Hal wants to see in the film is a teacher at a lectern speaking passionate words in a bureaucratic monotone that himself loved so much he always cast the same dull accountant non-actor in these roles uh who is speaking about mankind's historical fear of water due to its terror and flood but also its necessity to life he weeps while his classroom is dead-eyed and bored I think we can all relate to that Um you know what's funny? Some of the stuff here I'm realizing isn't even really a spoiler because, like, it's all like setting up stuff. That, like, we have a whole thing coming up on Gately here that takes place way in the past. So, yes, yeah, exactly. That's the thing is like all of this stuff is sort of like mist. Like it all exists and then none of it exists at the same time. Yeah, it's great. Great for a podcast. Mm. <laughs> Um, so before Gately became a thief after dropping out of school, he worked full time as a thumbbreaker for bookie Whitey Sorkin, <laughs> who I think he he must be like uh, a reference to Whitey Bulger because he because yeah. the, the book's based in Boston. That's when he was running around at the time. Yeah. Uh, for listeners unaware, Whitey Bulger was a real life mobster who was the basis of Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed. You can go look that up. Um, so. From 18 to 23, Gately and another goon, giant goon named Gene Fackelman, were debt collectors. Uh, notes he was never informed why Whitey was nicknamed Whitey, as the man tanned himself constantly. Gately and Fackelman, Fackelman introduced to Whitey through the same pharmacist assistants, were called his Twin Towers, which was also the name of a great <laughs> name of a great wrestling tag team. In case anybody wants to look that up. Uh, Gately notes that the job was nothing like the movies. He wasn't a personal bodyguard. In fact, he and Gene were almost never physically around Whitey. They were mostly just giant debt collectors, their size the implicit threat. The gamblers tended to be repeat customers, so it was its own little community. The rare debt trouble came from addicted old men who would appeal to Gately's pity. Uh, There's a great passage here, so I'm just going to quote it. Guys who got themselves in a hole and then tried suicidally to bet their way out who'd lie and agree to payment arrangements they had no intention of sticking to, suicidally betting, betting they could keep all their debts in the air until the one major long-shot score they were always sure was right around the corner. These types were painful because they knew Gately and would exploit their knowing him and beg and weep and t- tug at their heartstrings, sit there and look into Gately's eyes and lie and believe their own lies. Oh man! Great little. That's some uncut gems yeah, stuff right there. Yeah, y'all seen un- uncut gems? I haven't seen it yet. I have not. That you just described. That is the uh, plot to that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yes. One one last big score of a bet to float all the other all the other bets. Yep. 
And obviously there's a tie into regular, we are talking to Gately here. So there's a tie into regular addicts. And that was uh, one of the, I, you know, I feel like in this day and age with the opioid crisis, it's kind of hard to not have some kind of personal run in with like a hardcore addict of some stripe. And one of the things that just always blew, it's, it's one of those things, you know, but like just the ability to lie and you can see, they believe mm-hmm. that lie in the, mo- it always strikes me like, have you ever seen a fight where somebody truly does something deserving of an ass beating? And then when somebody grabs them, they say like, put me down. Like, <laughs> no, don't you know you deserve this? It's like that kind of like self dishonesty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of uh, parallel to all this. Uh, I have no idea if, if Wallace was thinking about this, but um, towards the end of his life, uh, while he was in prison, Whitey Bulger uh, claimed to have been a uh, part of the CIA's MK yes. Ultra program, uh, being forcibly dosed with LSD uh, as part of ongoing mind control experiments from the government, which I feel like is feels very within the milieu of this book. That like a Definitely. a mobster being dosed with psychedelics from the government uh, as part of a mind control program. Nice. All right, we're about to lose this, so I'm going to send you guys the other link, and I'm very sorry about this. All it's good. Okay. We'll, we'll keep we'll rolling. Right okay, cool. We'll ke- and we'll keep recording as well. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. All right, we're recording again. Well, actually, they never stopped recording. Uh, my anxiety is telling me they were talking huge shit on my incompetence while I was gone, and I agree with them. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay. You know what? While we're actually here, let's take a second. Have you guys having done podcasts before? What is like the worst fuck up that has ever happened on a podcast? That's like real like, ooh, I need to put out this fire now. Technical or like emotional? <laughs> it, it can be either or. I mean, prior to this, uh, I had a comedian on for a different podcast I did a few years ago who burst into tears in the middle. And I had the simultaneous, like, I really want to take care of him, but this is such compelling content, and I <laughs> definitely want to put it out. Oh, man. I don't know. Chris, you podcast, like, much, much more than I do. And especially since we're all usually in the safety of our own bubble for our other pods. I got to knock on wood here because I can't, I'm thinking back to three years of producing Jabba Trap House, and I don't think that I've had any like huge substantial fuck ups though i will say in my uh past life as a corporate podcast fuck boy uh one time i was scheduled to go uh field record uh the slate culture gab fest uh exploring the um the the met the museum uh and and like record them doing a podcast from the met and uh straight up slept through it uh, so it was like all the, like mo- some of the most senior editors at slate where I worked at the time, uh, waiting, like including the, uh, the, the editor in chief, like waiting at the Met for me to show up. And I was not there at all. Uh, did you say you got hit by a car or something? I, it was one of those things where at the time I was like 23 or 24 or something. I, I, I very much felt like, well, I might as well just kill myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there, <laughs> no, no reason to ever show up at work again. Wow, that is... That's uh, a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, um, let's get back into this. So, again, I was so worried about the spoilers, and now, thankfully, the time fluctuation really isn't. This is all stuff you would have presumed have been in Gately's past. Mm -hmm. 
Um, when actual violence was needed, uh, Fackelman tended to take the helm. He was the crueler of the two and more restrained. Ately, once he dipped into violence, was carried away with ferociousness. Whitey only resorted to Gately when he had no intention of ever collecting the debt and the, needed a beating to send a warning to others who thought Whitey was getting soft. <laughs> uh, for straight-up deaths, Whitey went to two Canadian thugs. Though Gately did once kill a debtor, the debtor uh, had maced Gately during discussions, and Gately had snapped his neck like Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> um, Whitey paid the two-hour... The, the Twin Towers well, but like most addicts, the money went through their fingers like water. Since they had different tastes in drugs, Gately and Fackelman were unusually trusting of each other around their stashes. Uh, Gately was terrified of Neil, so to shoot up Delouded, Fackel would get him diabetic one-use syringes that Don could see being opened fresh from the pack. Though with Delouded, there was always a weird five-second hallucinogenic delay as the drug crossed the brain-blood barrier, where he'd see himself as a gigantic infant trapped in a massive crib. <laughs> there's such a thing with gately which i'm sure we'll talk about more of just this disconnect from his like giant body and his like simple but deep brain mm -hmm. where like it's mm -hmm. just like in the same way of like the way he kicks ass at this uh debt collection job where he mm -hmm. doesn't and he was a football player before that like sometimes he has control over this gigantic body and then sometimes it just seems like he loses it and i feel like drugs mm -hmm. are his way of kind of like navigating that disconnect of just being like all right let's totally disconnect i mean there's a little bit of like a frankenstein's monster aspect yes. of like you know he he can't help he just picks up the little girl and chucks her into the river because mm -hmm. he's he's a he's a big dumb animal that's intelligent enough to know he's a big dumb animal yep yep and he doesn't and like indulge the cruelty the way that Fackelman does. Like, he's afraid of it, if anything. Exactly. And I understand. I mean, there's a, a few people I've known who had, like, enough anger problems that, like, I actually specifically remember one guy, like, removing himself from a situation. At, like, you know, like, I need to get out of here. This is going to be something bad. Like, what, dude? You could totally kick that guy's ass. So, like, no, I don't want it to get to that point because it does very bad things to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, I have seen quite a few barroom brawlers who are just, like, <laughs> beating the shit out of people while crying profusely. Like, there is deep, deep... There's a lot of deep things happening behind them fists. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so the crew gets into fraud, which uh, Gately eschewed for burglary as he felt less guilty never having to meet the people he was ripping off. Um... So I had a note here when I had initially was taking this summary, it really did frustrate me that like we're 900 pages in and we're still like giving character development. Like, <laughs> right. like at a certain point, I think he's developed. <laughs> <laughs> he's cooked. Exactly. He's take him out of the oven. He's done. Mm -hmm. uh, Molly, what do you, what do you think about that aspect of it in that like, I feel like a lot of novels, they like, there's like a world building chunk of the book. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, it's like, okay, we're world built. Let's go play in it. This book, however, never stops building that world. Yes. 
I I wonder my analysis of that is like is it just David Foster Wallace feeling self-conscious about the length and breadth of this narrative and so is constantly going back and just adding like a little more shading into someone because he's worried that maybe you forgot like what kind of guy Don Gately is after 900 pages where he shows up like I don't know how what percentage of the book is Don Gately ostensibly one of the like main heroes of this book in 25. I mean, if you want to talk like the active, if you're talking like things actively happening in the modern day, like he doesn't do all that much. Yeah. He's pretty much just chilling, but uh, Mm. yeah, no, that I, I agree that I think it, it almost, it feels a little, I don't know, too much to just continue like shading in. But then he'll put in like a, a biographical detail where you're like, oh, that kind of explains things. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I, I wonder, is it like cheating somehow that he's like, no, 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 I can explain this thing that happened 500 pages ago. It's because his mom did mm-hmm. this when he was a kid. Right. There is uh, there is a lot of compulsion in Wallace, which I think is part of the reason I like his non-fiction stuff better because like and i can actually understand part of the reason i've never pursued uh writing a novel or any any, like long form writing is for me it's like it's such an infinite slate of possibilities that i couldn't imagine like settling on one thing Mm -hmm. and it seems like wallace gets around that with uh wait i had another idea where can i cram this in here you know (laughs) or literally throwing a footnote in and just being like wonder if i just wrote this long thing totally parallel to the actual structure of the book exactly (laughs) okay um continuing we see pemulus plant something in a drop ceiling tile um oh no that wrote is that note is totally wrong i realize now that i fixed it uh that i finished it there's something else happens with that drop ceiling tile anyway Uh, he loves drop ceilings he He does and i don't about them frequently There is, I don't know, there's something interesting about drop ceilings in that it's like, I feel like everybody kind of wonders, like, what's between the floorboards? Like, you watch an old Simpsons cartoon and there's, like, buried treasure or a dinosaur skeleton. So maybe drop ceilings is, like, the accessible wonder of that little mystery. I also feel like drop ceilings is such a a good stand-in for, like, any place that you are in that has drop ceilings is not a place that you want to be. It is, like, a corporate office. It is, like, a Mm -hmm. bureaucratic uh, room it is you, you if you are in a place with drop ce- ceilings the chances are that you would like to be someplace better or more interesting mm-hmm. yes drop ceiling is only ever hiding the ugliness that is actually necessary to make this place work there is no mm-hmm. beauty hiding beneath a drop ceiling yeah exactly <laughs> also from living in a basement and uh, one of my family's former houses, great place to hide pornography as a teenager. Hey. <laughs> Which I feel is such an old sentence to this digital age. Like, why would you have to hide, you know, history clear, dude? <laughs> Which, oh, got so un- unrelated to this, but it has something to do with technology. So I'll say that uh, I realize looking back now as a teenager, when it came to like, let's be honest, it was pornography. That's what I was trying to hide. Sure. But <laughs> I had so much more faith in my parents' technical abilities. Like, oh, I can't do this because they'll be able to go back and see what I did. Meanwhile, like, they're asking me how the microwave works. But, <laughs> right. How do I open PDF? Yeah. They can't open your PDF, so you're probably safe. You can hide it mm-hmm. all in the PDF. 
Um, okay, Fackelman made a shit ton scamming on Whitey, taking long shot bets from unknown bettors and then never telling Whitey about it. If any of these bets had ever won, Fack would be fucked, but that never happened until it did. Which, again, if I feel is like another big drug addict mentality. Like, you know, don't worry, that'll never happen until it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, after... Uh, Sorry, I'm trying to go over spoilers as I go. Oh, okay. Um, please, yeah, please, ga- please do not consider me. Just spoil me. <laughs> I, I, I'm fine. Okay, okay. So, uh, so we all understand when Donald Gately becomes a cyborg and takes over the world. That's a very important part of the novel. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> okay. Um, after Fack was killed and Gately cleaned out his things, he did... Chris, don't worry. You don't. You do not meet this character until this point, and this is all years behind the actual narrative. Yeah. Uh, Gately cleaned out his things and discovered twenty-two grand cash stored away amongst his uh, items. He split the money with another roommate, but then decided to give his half to Whitey and say that was all they found, not out of fear but guilt. Whitey had been over generous with him, and that he'd been ignorant of fat, uh, facts scam. It had caused the caused the cluster headache prone Whitey a lot of grief and discover to discover he'd been ripped off. Um, definitely need to go over that. Okay, I do have a thing here where we have uh, ten dollar words of the week because we know <laughs> oh, David yeah. Wallace is a fan of them. We have uh, Lyle and Embrasure. So Lyle, that is a fine, smooth cotton thread used especially for hosiery, as in the inside of her legs in her white Lyle stockings. And embrasure, a small opening in a parapet of a fortified building splayed on the inside, as in an embrasure of sad window light shines through her legs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, David. I know. It's... when I was getting into this project, a lot of people were telling me that, like, you know what makes the book a lot better is if you have a dictionary with you the entire time. <laughs> that's so that's so irritating. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's the idea of who loves this book. That's, that sounds like, ooh, that, good idea, pal. Not like that sounds not enjoyable right. in the slightest. Well, then you have your giant book, which you're also flipping back and forth between the endnotes. And then you have another giant book to look up all the words. So your hands mm-hmm. are just, you need four of them. Uh, you know what's much better? Uh, taking wild guesses at the meanings of words based on context clues. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> that is a fun way to go about it. Okay. Um, Molly, do you have, I'm, I'm skipping over some stuff here about a particular character just cause it, I don't want to spoil one thing for Gately about you cause it is like the best part of the fucking book, mm. but there is a female character floating around in the background here as Gately is thinking of these things, um, portrayed as like, you know, kind of a sexy nurse type thing. Yeah. Uh, do you have any conflicting feelings about how the women in this book are portrayed <laughs> Like, I, I don't want to make this like, so you also have a vagina? Yeah. <laughs> As a woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, okay. This, uh, I, I can tie this into a, a joke that Chris makes a lot, which is that we found going to weddings over the years that the theme of like wedding rehearsal dinner speeches is always the same. And it is always the husband, the groom, uh, such a horrible boy, such a terrible man, uh, can't even put pull his pants up over his, his legs. If it wasn't uh, for the, this beautiful, wonderful, perfect angel, Melissa, our son David would be lying dead in a ditch. <laughs> 
He's not. He is not fit to walk in her shadow. Yeah, a disgusting <laughs> failure freak, who we ha- simply hate to see. If and it were if not it, for the salvation for his offered wife. by his perfect, wonderful wife. And so that I think reminds me of kind of the gender divide of how David Foster Wallace writes his women versus his men in this, which is just like these gross men with their horrible habits, their uh you know disgusting addictions they're pissing their pants they're uh you know they're picking at their faces and then i feel like most of the women are like beautiful angels like curvy shapely uh gorgeous creatures who can do no wrong and are just sort of accessories to male uh disgustingness it's funny that the one female character that i have encountered so far which is the woman who is in the mental hospital whose name is kate gompert gompert kate gompert uh that molly you pointed out as we were as we were introducing them that even uh literary titan david foster wallace uh cannot but help but describing his female characters is as uh as molly put it breasting boobily (laughs) (laughs) is like within the first like two or three pages of me of meeting kate gompert he, he has to say that her like her 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 ample bosom heaved, uh, barely contained by her fl- uh, uh, shaggy sweatshirt or something. But like it's that. always in the context of men noticing. It's it's never just they she breasted boobily. It's the Boob- doctor noticed her her breasts <laughs> breasting boobily, and so yeah, I think he seems self conscious about the the like sexual the male gaze. I guess, but that seems like I'm maybe giving him too much credit. <laughs> Uh, that's that's part of the problem with the book or uh, for a lot of people i would say it's a feature and not a bug mm-hmm. is like so so much of what you get out of it really depends on what you're inferring onto it like cuz mm-hmm. like that section right there there's honestly a lot to be uh delved into there of like you know somebody who has gone through all these years of med school he has all this knowledge in his brain and he obviously really wants to help this person but still he's a fucking guy and no matter what his interest he's in like so uh i see you've gone through a lot of troubles i would like to prescribe this nice tits by the way Um, (laughs) yeah again again, the brain body thing where it's like you got all these great thoughts in your head and yet you're just so horny Exactly. No, no matter what great pure heights you aspire to, like, you know, Albert Einstein loved getting his dick sucked (laughs) (laughs) just all day, every day. Like I need to find out the building blocks of the universe and I need to come. (laughs) And that's just the fucking reality. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Um, God, all right, hold on. I'm going to... Gately is feeling alone. All right, prior to his prison stint, Don had been involved with a drunk girl named Pamela Hoffman Jeep. She immediately fell in love with any... This is a very fun chapter for the modern day. Mm. Um, Pamela Hoffman Jeep. She immediately fell in love with any man who would take her home after passing out at the bar without raping her. Chivalrous, she called it. (laughs) Oh, my hero. Um, Oh, God. Yeah, Don met her while out on a collection with Fack, who had dragged her to the car and told him to take her home while he handled business. 
Gately noted the girl was in such a state of constant brutal hangover or fall down drunk that sex with her at any time counted as taking advantage. (laughs) She was also the most passive person he'd ever met, enough so that she physically never changed places under her own willpower, always being picked up and laid down somewhere else. (laughs) I I thought this was, I got a kick out of this, of just the the sexual papoose, as he calls her. Yeah, there's just uh, so I actually have a weird like connection with this too. I uh, I formerly dated a girl who was like legally disabled. She had like a connective tissue disorder, mm-hmm. and like I frequently had to just pick her up and carry her places, like some giant. Over- I remember we were at like a, a movie screening once, like a like a cult horror film festival, and she just passed out. So I had to like carry her like fucking like like a uh, rocky horror carrying dr frankenfurter <laughs> down the aisle while all the all these people are watching this movie and then just a silhouette of carrying an unconscious woman just like that's nah, fine it happens all the time don't worry about it <laughs> oh man I, I feel like he's maybe nailing somewhat of a female fantasy which is that it's fun to be baby <laughs> yeah sometimes you just want to be baby it, it is fun that like i i feel like with men and women there's like a but i've just seen this with a lot of people who were like settling for their partners and i feel like for men it's like well at least she has big tits and for women it's like well at least he's big yeah (laughs) (laughs) if if nothing else you can just get carried around like a little baby i also love the the pamela hoffman jeep thing where she's always wearing like prom dresses and gloves yes and she's mm-hmm. like the, the way she talks, like it sounds like she's almost has like a mid-Atlantic accent of like, don't be trying anything with me, young man. <laughs> I, I can sort of see her as uh, as like Stella from Streetcar. Yes. Only a, a more exactly. Like, oh, I've always counted on the kindness of strangers <laughs> to not rape me yep. while I'm passed out. Oh, yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Gately found her strangely attractive as her constant sleeping always gave the impression of post-coital afterglow. <laughs> um, Pamela had given Gately the gist on how Fackelman fucked himself over. The narrator tells us Pamela, how Pamela keeps passing out and including way too many details, which is then shown in text with her trying to recount the story but constantly sliding into side stories. Again, David Foster Wallace referencing himself. Mm-hmm. Portraying himself as a drunk lady in a prom dress. Um <laughs> Long and short, it appears that Fackelman took a bet from a guy known as 80s Bill, who made, <laughs> oh, no, it gets more interesting, uh, who made huge debts, and despite being super proud of his alma mater, Yale, he one day calls in a massive bet against Yale, hinting that he knows something. Um, anyway, when he goes to make this huge bet against Yale, his alma mater, Gene call- Fackelman calls it in, and the secretary gets it wrong, uh, like, puts it in for Yale. So despite this, uh, oh yeah, and also there's a mole on the opposing team finds out that one of the team players has a condition where his balance gets fucked up after sex. So the opposing team has pretty much put pretty girls and floozies all along the road to the hotel to try and fuck up this guy's game the next day. Um, Despite this and involving the handiwork of feminazis attacking the opposing team, that's just kind of thrown in there, Yale ends up winning handily. So basically what happened is 80s Bill lost the bet, but because the bet was put in wrong, Whitey Sorkin thinks that 80s Bill won. So pretty much he's in a position where the the uh, 
the bookie thinks he lost the gambler thought he lost and there's all this money in the middle that really doesn't have a destination so Fackelman takes it um amazing yeah which is neat this is also one of those little things though where i feel like everybody talks about what a genius david foster wallace is and i think he is to a certain degree but i think they re I think a lot of the things he writes about, he learns just enough to seem like he knows something about. Totally, totally. Like we get a lot of math stuff later in the book that like for all I know could be like hack math. Like he could, I called up a friend that was good at math and say, hey, I need something for this and then just take that. Can you read this and, and tell me if it sounds plausible? Exactly. But like right here where he talks about like, you know, this guy, despite being, you know, very proud of Yale, he betted against Yale where it's like, that's kind of gambling 101. Then again, I think part of that might have been me as a child. And I just went, Daddy, why are you betting against the Eagles? He's like, I, I love the Eagles, but they're not going to make me money today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's just such like a 101 thing. Um, so, oh, here's the fun part with 80s Bill. The unraveling of all this is uh, Whitey, the the booker, the bookie, his headache doctor and confidant, 60s Bill, is the father <laughs> of 80s Bill. And 60s Bill is, yeah, he's like, the he gives him like therapeutic light treatments or something because yes. Whitey gets like migraines. Mm -hmm. That's the other, David Foster Wallace is obsessed, and Chris, we'll see more of this as we get through it, obsessed with craniofacial pain. Like, there's, mm -hmm. that's like a theme through Infinite Jest that I don't quite understand, like, why he cares, but he's so into this idea of people being, like, di uh, what's the word, just totally um, fucked up with, like, headaches or migraines or, like, other things, and I mm -hmm. wonder if it, that's, like, some kind of metaphor he's using for depression or something. Regardless, but yeah. It, it, it does strike me that David Foster Wallace seems to hate heads in general, yes. and I actually <laughs> don't mean that as a joke entirely. Um, we did a side episode on uh, This Is Water, which is the speech he gave at, like, Kenyon College, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and one of the things he has in there is he talks about the brain being a great servant but a terrible master, mm -hmm. and it maybe takes a little too far, like, you know, when people kill themselves and they shoot themselves in the head, they're destroying the master, but mm -hmm. it's also, like, well, that's also just the quickest way to die, David. <laughs> but he, he, he does seem to be somebody who... Um, while I don't know it through crippling depression, uh, from crippling anxiety and panic attacks, I have learned to a certain degree to kind of dissociate and like not trust my brain entirely. So I yes. guess this might be putting a little bit of like a malevolent aspect on it where it's like, oh, it's not just that I have a headache. My head is a different entity that is doing this to me. Yeah, my head is my literal enemy of, mm -hmm. of the rest of my body. Mm-hmm. But also, the other thing I wanted to point out in this is that 60s, 60s Bob or 60s Bill or whatever is a Grateful Dead fan. And David Foster mm -hmm. Wallace manages to get a dig in at the like um, continued fandom of Grateful Dead people and how they're hanging out in parking lots trading tapes. <laughs> and like, but they all have like oxygen tanks and walkers. And this was 24 years ago. And it's still it's like still happening. The Grateful Dead are literally, the original members are literally dead, and people are still like, gotta check out Dead and Company. <laughs> and the, the fact that John Mayer, of all people, came in like a hostile corporate takeover 
And it's a little like, guess what? I <laughs> buckle up, Buckaroo. I own the Grateful Dead now. Now it's a, now it's a mix of VH1 rock moms and also longtime hippies. We're gonna he, <laughs> we're gonna leverage the synergy uh, and uh, manage the value add for for the Grateful Dead to take it into a new a new century. We we see a lot of uh, we see a lot of uh, space for development in the Bob Weir space. <laughs> oh god okay um so basically fact is fucked mm. uh gately notes that rather than do the smart thing glue on a goatee and run far away fact did the addict thing he went home and got really high and hid thinking it would help him come up with an escape plan <laughs> gately felt bad but also went out to get high with him in the living room the uh, the uh the way he goes where he's like Con trying to convince himself that he's sort of like he's tending to a sick person or that he's just there for like moral support when like really he knows in his heart of hearts that uh Fackelman just bought a shit ton of drugs with all of that money and he's he just wants to get high as well S so heartbreaking to me oh yeah it's the classic lying to yourself of addiction that whole like it's like eh, just one more like the the big factor everybody knows is like when the when somebody has an intervention, they need to go to rehab. Like, all right, just let me get fucked up before I go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and I, I understand that psychology a lot because every time I try to go on a sober binge, like, all right, well, I'm going to tie one on. You know, I want to, I want to make sure I go into this feeling my worst. <laughs> um, Hal hallucinates being in a graveyard with a sad kid digging up a body because something important is in a corpse's head uh somebody appears and asks don if he knew the deceased he says no as a sad kid reaches down and picks up the head by the hair and his face shows the expression of too late so that's almost a spoiler but it's already in the book at the way so, beginning at the way beginning yeah um i guess the less said about that the better <laughs> yeah. I only have one more page of notes here, so they go by quick. Um, okay, yeah. Mentally running from the danger, Fack embarks on, and Gately accompanies a major, a major binge episode, pushing into overdose territory. They just sit in place and get loaded again and again, pissing their pants, ignoring phone calls and the door buzzer. Uh, Fack repeatedly says his catchphrase, which usually gets great laughs. That's a goddamn lie. <laughs> After pissing and shitting themselves for day, Gately hears the buzzer intercom and it's Pamela. He rouses himself up, walking towards the door before falling and blacking out. Um, yeah, we get that a few times in this mm -hmm. book where, uh, much like we were talking about disassociating, your, disassociating yourself from your own head or like ascribing meaning to something else. Uh, Don Gately seems to have a real issue with he has added a persona to the floor yes. because he passes out on drugs so much. Yes. <laughs> that like the floor is something that he is always in danger of is going to be rushing up at his face any second now. Yeah. The, the way he describes like trying to walk to the bathroom and that he's mm -hmm. like dodging attacks left and right from the floor. Yep. Mm -hmm. Wild. Just wild. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, okay, that was actually not as much of a spoil. Again, I, the timeline really saved us on this, that you can read this far in. And I'm actually curious what you're going to think now when you guys get up to it, Chris, what you're going to think now having had this preview. Well, I mean, I honestly, 
from what you have described of this passage, it seems like it could be literally the next thing we read in this book. You know, exactly. it seems like it could, whatever is going on here could come, mm-hmm. you know, to be the next chapter from us that we read in our read through of it, uh, 800 pages earlier. Mm-hmm. I, I will tell you now that is one of the most frustrating things about the book for me is they will give you an absolutely awesome scene and then not follow up on it for like 300, 400 pages. Yeah. Uh, but also maybe that that is part of it is like, there's a real se- uh, uh, sense to this that you could like cut it up and reorganize it like drastically. And it would not <laughs> change the, the nature of the book very much. Uh, yeah, you could definitely, I, I would be interested. I've read a few things online of people talking about how to read infinite jest chronologically. I found which, that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's which was strange to read. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, well, some of it's interesting, and obviously you would need to read it the one way, the, the main way first. It would be, let's be honest, it's kind of bonkers to read a book chronologically in that way, let alone the first time. But, like, one of the issues I'm really having with the ending of the book, without giving anything away, is I have seen, like, charts and diagrams online of, like, showing the plot movement. Mm-hmm. And more than half of the graph is stuff that is only implied or <laughs> yeah. one throwaway sentence like this. The real frustration I'm having and uh, Molly, I think you'll get more of this is like, I finally really came along to the book after he'd been planting all these seeds here and there and then started pulling the web closer and closer. Mm-hmm. And then to me, he got to the end and then just dropped it and like, all right, later skater, have fun figuring the fuck out. Yeah. The plausible deniability of, like, any of the possible endings is incredibly frustrating. And Mm. I feel like probably just ties right into his, uh, like, the the legacy of James and Condenza of just, like, not ever being able to, like, stick the landing. Although you could argue that the entertainment That's that's the exact wording I used. It does not stick the landing Mm -hmm. even a fucking little bit. Because there's so many moments throughout the book where, you know, you you make the connection of, like, oh, so-and-so is that, and then it's super satisfying, you know, your Mm -hmm. brain fills with dopamine, and then there's just, there never is that version of that at the end at all. Right, I... I, I will say now that I'm a few days past finishing it, I'm coming to ter- I am coming to terms with it almost like a death. Which yeah. like, okay, I have gotten over that it was not what I was hoping it was going to be, and I am coming to accept what it actually is. Yep, yep. Which, which is a weird thing to feel about a book. Yes, uh, very strange thing indeed. You 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 made me consider the concept of infinite jest graphs. And mm-hmm. I am now Google imaging searching that. And there is a, uh, a lot of material in, in this search that uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me right now. But uh, I'm looking forward it to won't. eventually uh, <laughs> understanding what, these, uh, what some of these charts and graphs mean. I mean, one day you will have enough context to look at those things and go, oh, now I know this is bullshit. <laughs> 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 yeah. All right, so guys, I think that is our episode. We uh, got through it all. I feel like we didn't spoil. Molly, how did I do you on did the great. not spoiling? Okay. I know what you left out, and I appreciate it. And I, because I do think, even though you know, Chris, I think you you're okay with being spoiled, but I do think it is kind of satisfying to see the parts that you left out 
get woven into the mix and also they mm-hmm. simply wouldn't i don't even think we'd have time to explain them <laughs> if you chose exactly to keep them hey in. look as with everything it's not the destination it's the journey exactly yes it is the journey um so yeah again uh guys check out infinite cast i'm uh, my infinite jest time is almost done and their infinite jest time is still just beginning oh yeah so if you're if you've been following uh the i hate infinite jest journey and you're getting to the end and you're like damn i wish i could start that shit right over again uh we're on page 108 There you go. And there's a lot of them out there. Like what one of the things I didn't know who was going to be the audience for this podcast when I started it. But what I have learned is if you take it, it doesn't matter if you're shitting on something people love. If you are shitting on it at the same fanatical minutia that they <laughs> love it at their game. Yes. One They're just down fav- for the, the ride. One of my favorite comments or, that I've gotten from multiple people about us doing the pod is uh, <laughs> something sentiments along the line of oh this is nice it's like it's like seeing all my old friends with some new friends <laughs> yeah it does have that like i got i got a fan mail letter the other day from like a 15 year old kid who just said i'm loving your podcast like i'm reading this by myself i feel really lonely with it so i feel like i'm having a a one-sided conversation with somebody about it. It's a, a begrudging book club is what I've been calling <laughs> I it. love that. Well, because he can't just walk around talking about infinite jets because that's toxic masculinity. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. You have, to, you have to treat it like a shameful secret. <laughs> God, I do wish... I, I, I wish Wallace had survived, not only just because su- suicide, bummer, yeah. but uh, like to watch him justify himself nowadays with this stuff would be and it it is also a little like okay some stuff just came to light but at a certain point there are some people who are just trying to like spooky cancel beyond the grave (laughs) he killed himself he he self-canceled he canceled himself you you cannot you cannot cancel you cannot uh drag him any more than he dragged himself Mm -hmm. fair yeah so um but yeah so that has been this episode. Guys, where can we find you on social media? Because I'm unprofessional and did not ask at the beginning. Oh, it's all good. Uh, I'm social media to the end. Yeah. I, I'm okay. at, at Miss Molly Mary on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Say What Again on Twitter. And then Infinite yeah. Cast is, is it Infinite Dash Cast dot? On, on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com. Yeah. yeah. SoundCloud.com slash Infinite Dash Cast. That's how URLs work. Totally. Yes. yes. Uh, we don't have social media for the show, uh, mostly because it's, you know, we're, 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 we're just doing this as a, a little fun thing on the side for us. But uh, yeah, you, you can find us there and tweet at us if you have requests, comments, whatevers. There you go, guys. Check it out. Infinite Cast. Um, uh, we're going to wrap it up now because Zoom is still trying to kill me and we only have three <laughs> minutes left in this meeting. I got to figure out what the fuck that is. So I'll end like I end every episode. I'm going to stop recording, but you and I can keep talking for a sec. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Should I Wait, stop I, re- should I, I stop totally recording? forgot to say, um, I should have said it while recording. The song that you put in from last episode was uh, incredible. (laughs) 